Destination Medicine is a collaborative initiative of regional training hubs. With first-hand lessons learned from those who have gone before, this podcast is designed to assist and inspire anyone interested in pursuing a medical career in rural and regional Australia. Welcome to Destination Medicine. I'm Nicole Goodman. Dr. Rhys Harding has certainly taken remote medicine to the extreme. He's obtained an extraordinary skill set by working in environments from Nepal to southern Vanuatu and from the Royal Flying Doctor Service to outback Indigenous communities. He's now in the process of finishing his rural and remote specialty training at Newlandboy on the coast of East Arnhem Land. But it was during an 18-month posting to Antarctica as a solo doctor that he really found his feet. Dr Harding starts by explaining to Chris Ashmore where it all began. Originally born in Campbelltown and my parents were teachers in the outer suburbs of Sydney and uh, sought greener pastures on the south coast. So uh, they moved to Jervis Bay in Vincentia and me and my two brothers obviously went down there with them and uh, had this ludicrously beautiful upbringing by the shores of blue-green waters and white sands and the back of our house kind of stretched out into the national parks and bushlands and I can't really remember a day where we weren't trying to build cubbies or explore the woods or get on the mountain bikes and push through tracks and spearfish at the beach and roam the sands and go camping all over the place. So that was all basically what I ended up doing for majority of my upbringing interlaced with all the sports and and mayhem that having uh, two brothers quite similar in age can bring. Sounds idyllic. For a boy from the bush, what sparked your interest in medicine? I never really thought I wanted to be a doctor. I had one of those textbook athletic high school kids that was trying to do a bit of everything and I was leaning towards the health sciences but wasn't really sold on a career in medicine. I didn't really think I was able to pursue it at the time until I started my undergrad and then started reading about the postgraduate medical programs a lot of universities now offer around Australia. And that kind of pricked my ears up a bit and started thinking about what I wanted to do with my time and how I wanted to spend my life and what that looked like. And I ended up hanging out with my family GP from home and spent a week in the clinic just watching him do his thing and that was a big eye-opener and, and actually quite a large motivation for taking on the process of sitting exams and, and entering the process of going to medical school. I then had a job in a hospital working for well under the allied health departments and I had an opportunity to go and observe some surgery in theatre and I'd never done anything like that before in my life. And secondary, that was another big influence where I just realised it was very interesting, it was cool, you know, it was pretty mind-blowing what people were doing and and I just really thought, you know, like maybe I am someone who can do this and, and do this for a long time. So I just thought I'd give it a shot. And lo and behold, I'm now reaping the rewards of that. And the friends you made and the people you met at university, I understand, influenced you to expose yourself to different experiences and do new things. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I was pretty green when I went off to uni. I was still 17 and hadn't lived out of home I guess as most people haven't and so you know all of it kind of came at once so I moved on to college campus I turned 18 I was free from the shackles so to speak of 
life in my own town and and I started meeting all of these people who had had all these interesting gap years and international travel experiences and they'd I didn't even know that really existed. It was an opportunity and they just talked about their time living abroad in the UK and Europe and traveling to Africa and teaching English in Taiwan and skiing in Japan and having snow seasons in Canada. And, and I thought, God, I haven't scratched the surface of any of this. Like I've been playing for the Huskisson Seagull soccer team for the last 15 years and, and that's about it. So that started making me want to do a little bit more with my time and obviously with the blessing of having university holidays in the summer period, I, I started planning a lot of trips with my friends to uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific with what I could afford at the time on a student wage. And, and that sort of was the beginning of how I've started to carve my life out now. Well, there came a time, of course, that you had to sit the GAMSAT. Can you tell us about that and where you sat it? I sat it twice, actually. The first time... I didn't quite scrape through, which actually served a greater purpose in a sense because I ended up having a year off after that, travelling abroad. I studied in the US and and went to Europe. And and whilst I was in Europe, I ended up sitting in the GAMSAT in London. There's a site there, I think there's some sort of relationship with UK and abroad students that can sit at the facility in London. And um, I'd just been backpacking around Europe for a while and I was coming back on a bus through France to go into the tunnel and... I got stopped at customs and when I got interviewed and it was all around basically not having a bus ticket out of the UK. So I'd obviously had this ticket to go in and I was flying out of Italy a few months later, but I was going in to sit this test and couldn't really prove that I was sitting this exam. And so I ended up spending the night in this cell, getting all my gear turned inside out. Uh, I had a scruffy beard at the time and some longer hair, which is no different to what I have now, but the customs officers were not very convinced asked a lot about my financial situation, where I got my money from and all this sort of stuff. And uh, lo and behold, I think I did a bit of Googling and probably felt sorry for me in the end because I'd just been lying on this bench in this cold, dark space in Calais and eventually got let go. But uh, that was the lead up to my um, GAMSAT uh, success round two. Probably convinced by your honest face (laughs) in the end. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Well, you passed that and... uh, and you studied medicine at Wollongong University, part of the uh, medical school program. And I'd imagine that your upbringing in the bush, that's where your passion for rural and remote came from. Is that true to say? And, and did you always do your placements in rural settings? Yeah, Jervis Bay is a rural place. It's, it's coastal rural and, I mean, it's getting developed now and that's a bit of a shame, but both sets of grandparents had farms in central and central north New South Wales and we spent a lot of time out there as kids visiting with mum and dad and then when I went to medical school in Wollongong I mean just because it was relatively close to home and I'd been there before and seemed to make sense from an administrative perspective but it also offered quite a lot of opportunities with rural and remote medical placements and so the first opportunity I had went off to this placement and I went out to uh Wilkenya. So if anyone's been to Wilkenya or knows of Wilkenya, it's a town that's just inland of Broken Hill, but it's obviously been through a lot of troubling times of late. But it was a very, very awesome experience. And and I spent a bit of time in Broken Hill itself. You know, I was working in this place with no doctors and the flying flyout RFDS and the remote area nurses and and the lifestyle and the, the clinical presentations and 
the types of people that were working there. I just started clicking with me and I thought, oh, I kind of think I want to take a bigger bite of this apple and had some other placements in Narrabri and Weewar for a couple of weeks on a rural scholarship placement. And again, you know, sole doctor towns, you know, they're admitting at the hospital, they're seeing them in the GP clinics, they're doing caesareans overnight. You know, these people are hardworking, tired people, but well looked after by the community. And I, again, you know, that exposure was starting to kind of like absorb through my skin. I did a couple of placements in Shellhaven again, Shell Harbour, went out to Bowral in the Southern Highlands a couple of times. And and then in my third and fourth year, I had spent a year out in Broken Hill. And part of that was spending you know, a month in Menindee, the Menindee Lakes District at the health service. Again, no doctor full-time, but you know, fly and fly out, RFDS, telehealth. You, know, you start to build this idea of what it's like to cope and deal with uncertainty and that sort of thing. Did a few stints with the RFDS up to Tipperborough, which is at Cameron's Corner, the junction of South Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, trips out to Whitecliffs, Ivanhoe, and uh, back to Wilkenya again. And and uh, I had one of the most incredible years of my life out there. I mean, as a student, it was just laced with all these beautiful opportunities of a work-life balance and open roads and rodeos and gymkhanas and art and camping and just a flurry of people in the middle on the edge of the outback and I started getting exposed I think to this concept of rural generalism and it was just starting to take off in New South Wales and I came back to Wollongong after that and I think it was from then on I just thought yeah this is what I want to do this is what I would like to do yep I want to work remote and I'm going to do everything and so that brought me up towards the end of medical school and then I did a couple of placements overseas in Africa uh, for one of my electives and I did a stint in Darwin for two months and some other things that I did too in my medical school you know I ended up going to Vanuatu for a couple of weeks only in my second year but we went to this remote village in the island of Tanna and we're doing some community health care work there and uh, I spent a little bit of time in Nepal I worked at a place called Pokhara kind of the outreach service is what it was. I went with a Nepali doctor every day and we went in the troopy and we'd visit Tibetan refugee camps and slums and we'd go into little huts and see people with very impressive infectious disease profiles and head up into the hills and there'd be this monstrous line of people running out the door and yeah, another brilliant opportunity. And so yeah, these things were all made possible through the University of Wollongong Medical School and I still am very thankful for that to this day. That's fantastic. There's no end to remote places that you've been to, including the Antarctic. Can you maybe start with how did you get there? So the application process and the interviews and the psych assessments and the medical and it's also mandated for the doctors going down to do a winter that they have their appendix out. So I ended up having this prophylactic appendicectomy in Darwin the year of my departure. And I was actually very thankful for that, to be honest. And uh, that's based on the story of Leonid Rogozov in the 60s, who was a Russian physician who ended up taking his own appendix out with a mirror and some local anaesthetic. So I went through all of that, moved to Hobart. Uh, We do a few months of training and we go to the dental school in Melbourne and a very robust program getting you prepared to be the sole doctor and this kind of medical Swiss army knife for a group of people at the bottom of the earth. And that's a very full-on training program, but very worthwhile, very helpful and very relevant 
And then getting down there, you can fly down and certain times of the year to certain stations, but I went down the ship, so I went down on the good old Orange Ruffy, the Aurora Australis Icebreaker, and I left on the 25th of October 2019, so this the pre-COVID era, the end of it, and it's a two-week voyage down south to the station. Uh, I was the sole doctor on the ship, so I had 110 crew and expeditioners, and I was looking after them. It was my first time as a ship's doctor. I mean, a very steep learning curve, but a phenomenal experience as well. The voyage in itself is a journey and a real adventure. You've got the dropping temperatures as the latitudes change and you start to see the icebergs roll in and then you get to kind of like the edge of the raft ice and pack ice and penguins start to evolve and the seals lazing out in the sunshine and whales are just breaching up alongside the boat and sea life like albatross and petrels and they start to kind of swarm and you get very excited on a trip going down. And I remember it being one of the most memorable and joyous occasions, I suppose, of my entire life and was just really looking forward to kind of being down there and seeing what it was all about. The responsibility would have been huge and you would have been cognizant of that, looking after so many people for such an extended period and during those winter months. How did it feel? So you're right, a huge responsibility. It's interesting because I think one of the things that I was fearful of was not being prepared either personally or professionally to do the job. I obviously had a very important job. But I reflect now and even when I went down that I know that I worked very, very hard uh, leading up to it to make sure that I was well-equipped with the right medical skills and attributes and kind of mental space and and that sort of thing to be able to cope and to be able to function and to be able to, to deliver the job for ultimately a group of people who are essentially your friends, I guess knowing that you've got to be prepared to do almost anything in a medical capacity, be it anesthesia or surgery or dentistry or counselling. And the thought at the back of your mind the whole time is, you know, like, how am I going to feel if I have to go into the abdomen of one of my friends with no other medical support? You know, how is that going to make me feel? Can I compartmentalise that appropriately? Will I be able to make decisions? You know, will I crack? And to do that for, well, just under 18 months, I think is actually, I think it's pretty exceptional, you know. It's obviously a very unique circumstance that we were put under with COVID and we had an extension of our time down there. But the whole time you're on call, you know, around the clock, 24 hours a day, you're constantly thinking there's always that part of your brain that's just on alert, this hypervigilance, and uh, it's very exhausting. So you work psychologically hard for the people and you take a lot of the emotional toll of the people because you're their go-to person. We do monthly medicals, so they come in and for a chat, and you obviously bear the brunt of people's problems, which is the job. And then you have this bizarre and yet wonderful circumstance of living with your patients. So you've got to be able to be the friend in the community, but you've got to be able to be the doctor because the people need a doctor and they need someone to provide their medical care and they need someone to listen and they need someone to be a soundboard. 
and they're going to turn to you if anything happens. As someone falls over on the ice, someone's not coping, someone's sick, something's happened back home to someone, they will turn to you. And I think to be switched on for such a long period of time is very difficult. It's not normal. And yeah, it's just a huge responsibility that although tiring and it was absolutely worthwhile, it was just this beautiful, awesome, unique human and medical experience. Sounds absolutely incredible. It wasn't all work though, was it? You had time to play, I suppose, or relax. What did you do in your spare time? The Antarctic Division's done a really good job of providing things that basically to keep people sane and well and to give them something to do. So, you know, there's a small gym down there. We've got a sauna and a hot tub. We've got some mountain bikes. And so in the summer when the snow is melted, uh, even if there's a thin layer of snow, you can ride the mountain bikes. You know, some have got quite fat tires and there's the chains on them. There's a couple of people who took them out on the ice with panniers with all their gear and did some hut trips in them. And um, we can go cross-country skiing. So uh, there's not many hills there and it's a little frowned upon to do any downhill stuff because of the risk of injury. So, But cross-country skiing was quite welcomed. And so we did a lot of that and we'd pull our polk or, or the sledge. You'd put your tent and your gear in it and you'd ski out to an island and set up tents and and that sort of thing, and lots of hiking. So I lived in this really amazing part of the Antarctic called the Vestfold Hills, and it's there's about less than 1% of the Antarctic continents not covered in ice, and that was one part of it. So there's this oh, phenomenal you know, stretch of a stony paddock, I'd say, and it's just interwoven with fjords and lakes, you know, saltwater lakes and fresh lakes. And in the summertime, they'll melt and there'll be these like beautiful turquoise blues and in the winter, they'll freeze and you can walk along them. So lots and lots and lots of hiking. And there's a variety of huts, different locations. And so you could hike there in the summer, or you could drive there in the winter, you could ski there. So spent a lot of time trying to make the most of, of all of that and seeing as much as I could out there on the ice. After being away for so long at the bottom of the world, was it difficult for you to reintegrate back into society once you returned back to Australia? It was a very interesting experience returning. So I anticipated as much, like the Antarctic Division give you quite a bit of information about what to expect upon returning to Australia after a winter. But I remember the first few days was the sensorial overload experience. And so this is where, because you're so sensory deprived down there, lack of colours, lack of sounds, lack of stimuli. Like if you're with 20 people at the bottom of the earth for so long, like conversation is finite, vocabularies are finite. And so returning, you just have this buzzing. And uh, I remember just feeling really jittery and like I couldn't stop my eyes from moving around and my head from turning and things because you'd see buses and trucks and children like wow and then you see a dog and you see a seagull and you see like a cat and you're like oh my goodness I remember driving past a paddock and I saw some horses and um, my dad starts chuckling driving the car like what's wrong he's like I just saw what you did because you haven't seen these things you know I went to the botanical gardens in Tasmania and was just like rubbing trees and like picking up dead leaves and just getting all this texture back. You just don't have that. You know, you don't see a blade of grass. You don't, 
You don't swat off a fly. You don't have a mosquito. So there's all that. So there's that part of it. And I reckon that lasted about three days of intense, like, water on the shores really loud and seagulls were loud, dogs were loud, like, things were loud and colours were colours. And, and then there was the social stuff. I mean, I was really quite fatigued by the end of the trip and thought that I wanted to maybe catch up with all these people at full steam and then I just realised I was so exhausted and I didn't really want to see that many people. I remember going home to Jervis Bay and just wanting to play with the dog and get my fill of nature so I was just going for runs every day in the bush and swimming at the beach and just cooking on the backyard on the back deck with the barbecue and doing my own thing going for coffee to walk you know like to walk around without having to put four layers on and seek permission for everything you do. That's one of the most brilliant things. I remember like kicking my day one, I walked out the door of the hotel, I put some thongs on and I just t-shirt, shorts, sunglasses, rolled out the door on my own, went down to a hole in the wall coffee joint and then walked to the beach and I just, I mean, that's something you do every day, right? Most people in the country. But for me, it was just this, it was freedom. It was one of the most wonderful experiences and And I really savoured that. I think you could really have missed the window to really, really feel that sort of contrasting joy of not having that for so long and then coming back to that. I had a couple of months off before commencing work again and that was really helpful because you're cognitively slower. So it's well proven that people who are isolated for long periods of time and they have a cognitive decline. This is really apparent down there. Memory loss, forgetting words and all that sort of thing. People couldn't concentrate as much. They were just things that you normally knew that you could recite, remember, and talk about. That started to slow down. So that was a really interesting part of that. So just building all that back up. But the reintegration was assisted by the Antarctic program. They knew we'd been through quite a lot. They knew we were coming back to very unique circumstances. And so they provide a lot of counsel and a lot of resources to assist us and Lots of, like, my department, the Polar Medical Unit, were following up with phone calls and well-being checks and, and that sort of thing. So it was, it was really good. Well, your passion and desire for remoteness hasn't gone away. In fact, from one extreme to the other when it comes to climate, you're now in the top end of, uh, of the Northern Territory. What are you doing now and what does the future look for you? Yeah, so I um, moved back to Nullanboy. It's a town in East Arnhem Land. It's a beautiful part of the country. I first came here in 2015 and I spent three months here and and loved it. Yeah, I've come back here to kind of finish up my rural and remote specialty training. So I work between the local general practice in town, it's just one clinic, and I work at the hospital doing emergency medicine and the ward medical job and doing some work in the operating theatres. So I get this really well-rounded professional experience up here as well. And uh, it's tricky because I think of the Antarctic a lot, but being down there made me miss being up here and being up here makes me miss being down there. And there's actually a lot of parallels. You know, you've got to live in a small town and you see patients everywhere and there's all the stresses of of isolation in a remote community. You know, you basically can only get here. You can fly or drive, but if you drive, it's cut out for most of the wet season and it's 550 kilometres of dirt road down a bumpy track, so... You are quite confined, but yeah, that's why I love it here. And it just gives you the opportunity to do a lot of cool and, and varied medical work. And so I'm pretty sure I'll be around here, you know, at least working in remote Australia for the rest of my career, really. 
That's Dr. Rhys Harding, a rural and remote medicine trainee now working in East Arnhem Land. Regional training hubs are supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Rural Health Multidisciplinary Training Programme.